Well, good morning. How are you? You're not very committal, are you? It's like, I don't know. Let me just check that pulse. Yeah. My name is Ron. I'm on the pastoral team here at Central, and I want to welcome you to Geriatric Sunday. This is the Sunday they put the old in the pulpit to still see if he has the mental capacity to preach. And so I'm hoping that I don't disappoint. We'll see how it goes. Lois, thank you for your kind words and your prayers. I always coveted. So good. Um, I've uh, been given the topic of sister church relationships, and I'm pretty sure it's something you've never thought about, at least not in any depth. And I, I have probably more than most because I used to uh, oversee the churches in BC uh, and was a conference minister. And so my job, part of my job was to help churches relate to each other. And just this last weekend, just Friday, Saturday, came back from our uh, denominational convention. It was held up in Whistler uh, where uh, 100 churches in BC came together to talk about our commitment to doctrine our commitment to the Word of God, and uh, the theme that came out of it as we gathered and we prayed and we studied the Word together, that is, we are recommitting ourselves uh, once again, it's nothing new, but uh, a recommitting of, our, of defending the faith, contending for the faith, and staying true to the Word of God. Because apart from that, we have nothing to offer. Uh, and so I just I find myself uh, quite encouraged by that. At the same time, I find myself um, somewhat discouraged I don't know how it's been for you, but I know for many of us on the pastoral team, these last couple of years have been disturbing uh, because we have watched as brothers and sisters in Christ have gone to war with each other and have divided over silly things like masks and vaccines and passports uh, and just stuff that ought not divide us. I mean, they certainly are important, and please don't hear me say that they're not and that, that people's perspectives are not. I think they are. But it's not the stuff that divides us. Because the thing that unites us is so much more powerful. And what unites us is our common encounter in Jesus. Uh, it's been interesting to watch, even as believers have been at war with each other, churches have been at war with each other over COVID. Um, and here's the thing, folks. COVID will pass. Uh, it may take Jesus coming again for it to pass, but it will pass. Um, and so, you know, just take heart. There will come a day when you won't have to worry about this nonsense. Um, as I was doing my, my homework on this idea of sister church relationships, I discovered two trends in the church that uh, were disturbing. Uh, there was a trend of fracture and a trend of decline. The trend of fracture has to do with the number of denominations that are, are growing worldwide. In 2008, uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary reported that there were 39,000 denominations worldwide. 39,000 worldwide. By 2025, that number is expected to hit 55,000. So in, in just a few short years, we will have grown by some, what is that, uh, 26,000 denominations. Almost doubled in the number of denominations. It's craziness. And so Christians fracture. Now, there are times when it's appropriate to actually establish a new denomination when there's doctrinal error and people are, are trying to stray or will not be led. But I get that. But this, there's this trend that every, uh, every 10.5 hours, a new denomination is formed. Is that not crazy? That means that there are 2.3 new denominations a day. So if you don't like us, there's a new one waiting for you. 
at the same time, I discovered this, uh, this trend towards decline. In Canada, there are 30,000 churches, at least there were in 2019. Uh, and the CBC reported that the trend nationally is that by 2029, so that's seven short years, is that true? Is that, is that right math, Eddie? Yeah, good. Um, that in, in seven short years, Canada will lose 9,000 churches. That's one-third of all Canadian churches will close. That's really scary. And so when I think about uh, sister-church relationships, it strikes me that it's a really important topic because we're given to fracture even as we are declining. And it's all the more important for us to work together. But what I really discovered as I spent some time in this is the importance of, of something that... Um, transcends all of the statistics. And what I discovered is that Jesus calls for his church to be unified. He wants us to be one. So this morning, I want to look uh, really um, briefly, it's going to be a bit of a, a whirlwind, at three things. I want to look at a clear and compelling motivation. I want to look at distinctive core convictions. And then I want to look at a generous expression of unity. So three things. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them. We're going to look at John chapter 17. And I invite you to stand for the reading of the Word. And we stand because this is God's truth to us, His Word to us. And in honor of His Word, we want to uh, have a posture of humility. So John 17, starting at verse 20, part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus speaking. I do not ask for those only, that is his disciples. I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The Word of God to us. Please take a seat. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at uh, sister church relationships, and I want to start by looking at a clear and compelling motivation. This small passage out of John 17, and it reflects Jesus' heart for the church. What's amazing is it is spoken in the context of the Passion Week. So Jesus is mere steps from the cross, and he's uttering his last words. He's giving his last instructions. And as he pours out his heart to the Father before his trial and ultimate execution, you discover Jesus' heart for the church, and you discover that it's one of unity, that they may all be one, verse 20 tells us. He goes this way, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. It's a fascinating phrase, this word, may all be one. It's what's called an ontological statement. It's a statement of being. It's, it's not that he's wishing we would be one. He's actually declaring that in him, we are all one. That they may be one. We are one as fellow believers. If you know Jesus... You are one with the people around you. You may not be one in a lot of ways, but in this ultimate way, 
in your relationship with the Savior, you are united with the people around you. There's a bond of unity that should draw us together. We have a common experience of grace. We have a common vision of Christ's kingdom. We have a common mission to proclaim the gospel because we are all one in Christ. And when Jesus shares his heart, he wants us to understand that our unity reflects an absolute reality and evidences a divine mission. In verse 21, he puts it this way. Just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The thing that roots us together in relationship to God is our position in Christ. When we are in Christ, we are not on our own, nor are we our own. We are united in him. It's actually an amazing thing for it to say that we're connected to the Father. Literally, we're in God. That is amazing. Our unity as believers, being in Christ, reflects this divine reality. Just as Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is in Jesus and the Father, we're connected together. Even as the Father and Jesus are connected, so are we. And it reveals a weighty privilege and a profound reality. We sometimes think that we're independent Christians, but there is no such thing. We're united, like it or not. Just take a look around the room at the people you don't like. You're going to spend eternity with them. It's way better to get to like them now. See, on top of this unity that we have ontologically, we be one, we are one, it, it reflects something even more. The unity that we live out endorses God's mission in Jesus. That's what he tells us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. Our position in Christ, that which unites us with one another and unites us in God, serves as evidence to the truth of who Jesus is, the Messiah. It unites the most unlikely of allies. I preached this message last week in Chilliwack. And the thing about the Chilliwack campus is it's full of Dutch people. Now, Dutch people love to argue. It's one of our spiritual gifts. And in this room full of Dutch people, you find that we are united in Christ. And if there was evident, ever evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work and that the gospel is true, is you can put a bunch of Dutch people in a room and they don't argue together. You see, we are not connected by our social status. We all come from various perspectives. We're not connected by our um, heritage or ethnic status. Uh, when I first started with the Mennonite Brethren, our denomination, people used to play the Mennonite game. And the Mennonite game was where people would say, well, who are you related to? And then, you know, there, there are people who could say, well, I'm related to, the, to 27 people, you know, and that's my fourth cousin, 17 times removed, and, right? Sherry and I are not related to anyone within the Mennonite Brethren family. Thank you, Jesus. Fresh blood. <laughs> At one point, we thought maybe we should divorce and marry someone so that we could be related. But we decided that probably wasn't a good idea. See, the thing that unites us is our common experience in Christ. That collectively, when we are united in Christ and we reflect the glory of his mission, we authenticate his mission to bring people together under his sovereign reign, it, it causes the glory of God to fall on us. 
That's what the passage says. That the glory you have given me, Jesus says, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. This marvelous word glory, doxa is the word. It means honor or privilege or renown or splendor. And we do well to remember the high and holy privilege that we have in Christ. By calling us into his family, we have received the privilege, the honor, the renown of being part of his family, redeemed by Jesus, called to be his heralds, to proclaim his glory, commissioned to live out that calling in the communities in which we live. It's these truths that unite us and reflect the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? It's why we gather on Sundays. There's something about us living our lives alone and doing our thing, and that's really good because we're on mission. But when we come together, this room fills with the glory of God. And that's why it's important for us to come on a Sunday morning. So let me just summarize this, that our relationship in Christ is a high and holy privilege. And it comes with significant responsibilities. It creates an unbreakable unity. Jesus says that they may be perfectly one, completely one, wholly one. It forges uh, the full measure of who we are in Christ, and it serves as evidence of gospel witness, and it validates the fullness of God's love. If God can redeem a guy like Van Acker, there's no one beyond his grace. And it reflects the glory of God. And so why talk about sister-church relationships, such a strange thing when we're given to dividing and we're shrinking in number? Because it's important to Jesus. Jesus' heart for his church is one of perfect unity. Unity within this congregation and unity with other congregations. Why we pray for Southside. It's a unity that reflects the relationship of God himself, a unity that evidences the miraculous work of Christ and brings people to a common experience of grace. So I don't know about you, but I find that a really clear and really compelling motivator, that Jesus wants us to be unified. So here's the second thing, though. Who does he want us to be unified with? So I think the second thing we need to look at are what are the core convictions or distinctive core convictions? See, having said that we're called to be in unity with fellow believers, it's important to note that not everyone who professes to be Christian follows Christ. It's important to discern what constitutes a sister church, or we use terms at Central like a like-minded church or a gospel-centered church or a church on mission. And to do so, there's a couple things we have to embrace. We have to embrace a heart of humility to recognize that we don't have the complete answer. We don't have the full measure of what it means to be faithful to Jesus. We're trying, and we're working towards that end. But there are other believers who have something to offer us in their experience of who Jesus is. And it also requires a measure of discernment to recognize, again, that not everyone who professes to be a Christian follows Jesus. And so I like a different word than Christian. I like the word disciple. We're called to be unified with other disciples. I, I came across this quote that I rather like, and it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And let's look at it and see what you think. All disciples of Jesus are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. Is that your experience? 
all disciples of Jesus are Christian, but not all Christians are disciples. See, I think Christian has become a generalized term, a moniker of religious preference or tradition. I mean, we still talk about it in terms of I'm a Christian. For me, that means I follow Jesus. But for many, it's just a religious designation. I'm a Christian. I have a, uh, a friend, an old friend, who um, is Catholic. Uh, he would say he's Catholic and he's Christian. Um, I have known him for 35 years. Not once has he gone to church. Not once has he talked about God. But he's a Catholic. Right? I love this man. I just think he's whacked. He thinks I'm whacked too, by the way. Let's just be clear about that. And he's probably uh, more correct than I am. But I like the term disciple because disciple is a term of determination or action. It's a term that reflects a direction or an orientation of the heart. The word disciple is mathetes or, or a follower. It's a student, an apprentice, a learner, an adherent. It's someone devoted, devoted to following something. And in the context of being Christian, or in the context of Jesus, a disciple adheres to and gives themselves to following the teaching of Jesus. I like what the early Christians called themselves. They called themselves people of the way. We're on a journey with Jesus, and we're determined to stay on that journey. Uh, maybe another word that's helpful is the word orientation. It's a fairly big word these days, right? Orientation. And essentially, I think that's what's at the core of the word discipleship. What's my orientation? And I'm not talking about trivial orientations like gender or sexual orientation or even your social orientation or your political orientation. See, again, folks, all those things will pass. I'm talking about orientation, all caps. Is your life and your action, are, is my life and action oriented to and by Christ? Am I determined to give myself to following him? Does who I am align with who Jesus says I am and who he's calling me to be? Regardless of the, the situations in my life. Regardless of how I feel about things. Is the determination of my heart to follow Jesus. I, I like how Jesus defined what it meant to be his disciple, and I find it disturbing at the same time. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's a high calling. Self-denial doesn't fit well in our culture, does it? Self-fulfillment does. Take up your cross. The cross is the instrument of torture and death. What's the hardest thing for you to carry? Jesus says, I want you to carry that for me. And then give yourself to following. Not to leading, to following. If you read church history, you discover that it's been a challenge to define what it means to follow Jesus since the very birth of the church. The, the question of core doctrines or beliefs or convictions have been around since the very beginning. And in response, the early church created some beautiful creeds. Uh, there's the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and they outlined the essentials of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. So it was really easy to understand. These creeds, these 
Christians identify core convictions for disciples. We call them core doctrines. They outline what family DNA looks like and help us to identify who we are to be united with, who we're to be aligned with, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, what are sister churches. And, you know, there, it's important to recognize that there are some doctrines we can disagree on. We call them secondary or open doctrines. But there are a set of doctrines, core or closed doctrines, that we dare not deviate from and we must hold. Otherwise, we lose what it means to be believers, to be Christians. A secondary doctrine would be something like um, the details around the end times. You know, you have some people who are premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. You know, I, I just hope I'm going. I kind of like what Jesus had to say about the end times. He said, I don't know, talk to my dad. (laughs) I figure if Jesus can say that, I probably can too. Now, do I have a preference? Yeah. I'd like to be pre-trib if I could. You know? If it's my choice. But that's up to Jesus. And Jesus says that's up to his dad. There are other things where they're they're non-essentials. Things like polity. We are a complementarian church. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are egalitarian. They're wrong. Just kidding. We see it differently. There are things we can see differently. Baptism's another one. But believer's baptism. By the way, can I tell you a joke? Don't be offended by this one. Why do Christian Reformed people sprinkle when they baptize? They sprinkle, they don't immerse, right? It's so their cigarettes don't get wet. (laughs) Just saying, coming from the Reformed tradition myself, I know these things, you know. We give out Bibles at confirmation, they give out cigarettes. It's, It's just the way of their people. See, those are things we can laugh about, and those are things that we can... We can have differing opinions on. But there are core doctrines that we dare not deviate from. Because when you do, you lose the gospel. Maverick, just so you know, uh, just this spring we offered a foundations class. And, and part of the foundations was core doctrines. Pastor Matt brought us through uh, a core doctrines class. We're going to teach it again this fall. And so I'm just going to briefly go through some core doctrines with you really quickly, actually. But if you want to flesh it out more, I encourage you to take the core doctrines class this fall when it comes around. Here, here are five core doctrines of the Christian faith. People would parse this slightly different than me, but I wanted to make it succinct in only 10 pages. So first core doctrine, the authority of Scripture. See, the Bible is the primary means by which God reveals his person and his purpose. It's the final and sole rule for all matters of faith and life. And it's trustworthy in everything it affirms. There are key words that we give to the Bible. We call it infallible and inerrant. It will not lead you astray. And the Bible informs and it infuses our faith. And you'll discover here at Central that we preach and teach the Bible. It's the foundation of our faith. We don't just give our opinion about things. We let the Word speak. The Word infuses and informs our daily lives and and lets us know who we are and in the process discover who God is and who He's called us to be. So Scripture is really important to us. We will not deviate from it. We also believe in the person of God. One God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. That God can be known generally through general revelation. You can, you can know that there is a God through nature, 
But apart from God's special revelation, which comes through the word, you can't really know who he is. Only as God reveals himself can we come to know him fully or more fully. And God's attributes, the word teaches us, include sovereignty and holiness and omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence and his immutable nature. He's unchanging. He's righteous and just and merciful and judges rightly and is love. And so often we want to define God in our terms, but God calls us, he demands that we define him in the terms that he, with which he defines himself. See, it's in Christian theology that God defines who he is and who we are in relationship to him. We do not define him. We're defined by God, and Scripture clearly reveals the fullness of God, his character, his plans, and his purposes. We believe in the person of God. We believe in humanity, that we are created in the image of God, male and female, and that despite God's warning, we chose to sin and to rebel against God, And we now face the consequences of our sin. We are dead spiritually. And we're unable to save ourselves. We're enemies of God, destined for a godless eternity apart from God's grace. Romans 3 reads this way, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a great summary statement of our, our situation. And that we live in a world that's affected by sin. It is broken, and Scripture tells us it moans and groans as a result. Every person is born with a sin nature that causes us to love evil and reject God. And left on our own, we're lost. And that sin explains the sad state of the human condition. It explains the heartbreaking state of the world in which it explains the confusion our world is facing in terms of gender and orientation and explains pain and suffering and injustice and it explains the overwhelming presence of evil. And if that were the end of what we believed, we would be hopeless. But we also believe in the gospel. Romans 5, 8 puts it this way. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We believe the gospel. God sent his perfect son, born of a virgin, in the flesh, fully God, fully human, to live a sin life, to point us to God, and to ultimately pay the penalty of sin by dying on the cross in our place. We believe that the death and, and the death in the grave could not hold Jesus, but we celebrated that just a couple weeks ago. He broke the chains of sin, death, and the devil, and after dying in our stead, he rose victorious from the dead, and more than that, he's our propitiation. He just didn't do that for something to do. He did that to buy us back. He bought us and he brought us peace with God. And that Jesus offers us his righteousness to all who will believe with the gift that with righteousness comes eternal life. And that after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God and he intercedes on our behalf. And that one day he will return to judge the world and to deliver his people. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him that access to God only comes through faith in Jesus and his redeeming work, and that Jesus is the center of the church. Essentially, everything is to him, for him, by him. And when we lose sight of this, whether that's in our lives or as a church, we lose sight of the gospel. We cease to be Christian. We also believe in the church. 
The church is God-ordained institution that is headed by and exists for Christ. It is infused and empowered with the power of the Holy Spirit and is used by God to proclaim the gospel. Can I brag on our elders for just a minute? Um, we have uh, elders, and there, a number of people have been nominated to, be ser- to serve as elders. And so the people that uh, were nominated are trying to discern whether they want to uh, move into elder leadership were at our last elders' meeting, and they got to ask questions of the elders. Um, and the question was asked, how do the elders make decisions? Right? Now, that's a good question. Right? Now, one of the things you should know is the elders at Central do not vote. We work towards consensus where we can all agree together that we believe God is calling us to something or speaking to us in a particular way. And then we make a decision. As we're sitting there, Alf Weeb, uh, who is uh, just, I love Alf. He doesn't speak a lot, but when he does, you want to listen. And Alf Weeb said, oh, that's easy. We just listen to the Holy Spirit, and what he tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. Now, that's a pretty simplified version of it, but that's essentially what it is. See, if we're led by the elders, we're lost. But if we're led by the elders who listen to the Holy Spirit, there's nothing we can't accomplish, folks. And if a church, as we give ourselves to be a church that's led and empowered by the Spirit, there's nothing we can't accomplish. I mean, this weekend we saw a video. Pastor Jonathan was on it. And it was a video about the community association here approached Central to ask if we could plant a church up here. When does that ever happen? A secular organization saying, hey, we need a church. It's quite the opposite, actually, most of the time. But that's the spirit of God moving. Universal Church, we believe, is made up of all believers since the day of Pentecost, and it's designed for teaching, worship, fellowship, celebration of baptism and communion, for discipleship, and for evangelism. And here's the thing. There is no such thing as an independent believer. If you think you are, you have been led astray. You need the people around you. We are all interdependent on Jesus, and as a result, we are united together and interdependent on each other, and we're called to live out the unity uh, as disciples of Christ to reflect our redeemed status. Anyways, I want to press on. We need to be done by two, I understand. So, Those aren't all the doctrines, but those are five core doctrines, and some people would parse them slightly differently, would say we have six core doctrines or seven core doctrines, but essentially, Jonathan, did I get it right? Okay, so when Jonathan says I got my theology right, then you know I still have the mental capacity to preach. Yes! It's good. Okay. So then let me share with you from scriptures uh, three generous expressions of unity. And I'm going to go quickly, um, just for the sake of time. Two, I'm going to just linger on a little bit. When you read the New Testament, you discover there's a number of ways that the New Testament churches worked together for the sake of the gospel. And the first thing I discover is the call for sacrificial support or sacrificial giving despite adversity for the sake of the gospel. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll just read verses 1 through 7. Fascinating story. Paul writing to the Corinthians about the Macedonian church. Macedonian churches are Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. Okay, so he's writing about these three churches. <clears throat> We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, 
Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Does that make sense to you? For they're in their severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That just seems weird, doesn't it? Good weird, but it's weird. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, the saints in Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you, that's the Corinthians, this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. That's the most incredible passage. The Macedonian churches were motivated to give because of the gospel. Motivated to give because of joy, an abundance of joy. But we're told that they were in a severe test of affliction. And their response was joy. Look, we just came through COVID. Some of you were not joyful. And that wasn't even a severe test of affliction. That was a minor irritation. And yet here, the Macedonian churches, were told, were joyful. They were joyful in the face of persecution. Why be joyful? Because they know that Jesus surpassed their circumstances. They wouldn't last forever. And despite their circumstances, the lives filled with persecution, and in the context of extreme poverty, obviously from South Surrey somewhere, the Macedonian churches embraced the opportunity to give with joy that overflowed in a wealth of generosity. This kind of joyful giving when you have nothing and you're being persecuted only comes in the context of gospel fluency. These churches understood the grace of God to them and responded in a manner that was worthy of Jesus. For they gave according to their means, Paul says in verse 3, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, I understand they gave according to their means, right? So if you have 100 bucks, it's not so painful to give 10 bucks. Now, if you look at StatsCan, the average Canadian, if you had 100 bucks, the average Canadian gives away 2 bucks. I can do that. A toonie's not so bad. But we're told that the Macedonian churches gave beyond their means. And what that means is that they, they went without for the sake of the gospel. Sacrificial giving for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Willing to go without to ensure that their brothers and sisters in Christ had their needs met. That the church had its needs met. It's a radical expression of sister church relationships. They gave earnestly, I love verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of giving for the saints. I've been a pastor 35 years. Not once has someone begged me to give. Matter of fact, neither have I. Is that not an amazing 
story of the Macedonian churches. Sacrificial giving for the gospel because it was a privilege to give, not a problem to give. See, they recognized the high and holy privilege of building the body of Christ. And why did they do that? Well, verse 5 tells us, actually. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Catch the phrase. They gave themselves first to the Lord. First to the Lord. I had a pastoral mentor. His name was Carlin. And he preached a sermon that is still in my head. And, and his, his title of his sermon was, The Problem went on to say the problem for believers is and our God is too small. I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. We find ourselves chasing after things as opposed to asking the question, Lord, how do I invest what you've given me for your glory? The Macedonians weren't that way at all. They gave themselves first to the Lord. First to the Lord requires sacrificial living. And the Lord requires living by faith, and it requires a gospel-centered orientation, and it requires faith that exceeds their circumstances. See, first to the Lord is a standard for all disciples. And Paul commends the Corinthians and reminds them that generosity reflects an understanding of the fullness of God's grace. Paul says in verse 7, you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace, this act of giving. Lavish giving for the sake of the gospel becomes normative. It's an evidence of grace. It tells people that you're oriented towards the gospel. And just so we're clear, Paul's not trying to guilt anyone. Scripture's not trying to guilt anyone. God wants a cheerful giver, not a begrudging giver. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's not a command or a compulsion. It's just recognizing that if a group of churches in Macedonia who are under persecution and have nothing can give exceedingly, there's really no excuse why the church in Corinth can't either. And that's probably true for us. So I don't know about you, but there's always an excuse not to give, right? I mean, they're life essentials, like a third car or, uh, I don't know, my second trip to Mexico or, you know, designer jeans or, you know, I mean, the stuff you have to, you have to embrace these days. There's always an excuse not to give unless Jesus is your primary motivator. And see, ultimately, it's a recognition that God did not give us resources to hoard them for ourselves. He gave us riches as stewards so we might embrace the favor of lavishing them on others for the sake of the gospel. The primary motivator here is sacrificial giving for the sake of the gospel, and it's in keeping with the example that Jesus set for us. For though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Sister churches give for the sake of the gospel. Let me just give you a couple quick examples. Quite amazing, really. Um, This weekend I heard uh, there's a church on 56th Avenue in Langley um, called Bethel. A bunch of old people, there's about 60 of them left, but they're not growing. 
They voted this week to give their church, which would be worth millions of dollars, to North Langley so that gospel work can be established. That's amazing. See, that's sacrificial giving for the sake of the gospel. And by the way, different denominations. Um, you know, in our context, we are part of the BC Conference. Um, our, our denomination has given us, Central, $70,000 over two years to help pay for expenses when we launch Harrison. That's amazing. And then 10 churches in our conference heard that we had a flood in Lake Eric. You know, our, our campus over in Lake Eric, we had a flood. Insurance didn't cover it. 10 little churches raised $27,000 and sent us a check. That's sister church relationships. Northview? Northview gave us $300,000. Picked up the check a couple weeks ago. That was fun. I just flashed it to people. Yeah. But on top of that, they've also committed to giving us $70,000 for operations. That is lavish giving. That's also our heart as a church. In 2020, when COVID uh, hit, <laughs> we had a surplus. And our elders determined that we wanted to bless other churches. And so we gave money to a church plant in Newfoundland, One Mile Mission, that, that wants to see Atlantic Canada reached for Christ. We also gave money to a, a church plant in Vancouver, Midtown Church, because they are rebirthing a church out of an old church that died. See, that's our heart as well. What would it be like if it were said that we were like the Macedonian churches, full of joy and eager to give? Not for our own sake, but for the sake of seeing the gospel go forth with power. Okay. Oh. Yeah, the old guy's good, but he talks too long. If I had time, I would spend time in Acts chapter 15. These are three full sermons by themselves. Acts 15 talks about doctrinal integrity. It's where churches come together to make sure they get the gospel right. And the church of Antioch is struggling because they believe in the gospel of Jesus, but people are saying, no, you need to add Old Testament law to it, otherwise it's not real. And rather than fight among themselves, they appeal to the church in Jerusalem, and they say, hey, help us get this right, because this is gospel. This is important. And the church of Jerusalem does, meets and gathers and talks, and three things come out of that. You have wise men who speak, and they speak really great words. And, you know, you would think that, okay, these wise people spoke, they, they should just decide what to do and press on. But, you know, that's not good enough. Because then they say, we actually need to understand what happened. And so they listen to the people of Antioch to make sure they understand what's, what's been going on, what have been people's experiences. And so many of us just want to live in our experiences, but they say, no, no, that's not enough. That's great to, to hear those experiences. James actually says in the context of Acts 15, okay, what's been said is good. The experiences are great. And what's even better is those things align with Scripture. And so we can actually affirm what's going on there as being true gospel. That's a good word for us, folks, that we need to test our, we need to test the wisdom of our leaders, and we need to test the wisdom or the, the, the emotion of our experiences always by the Word. And when we do, we'll give ourselves to true doctrine. Anyways, for the sake of time, let me just press on. Final one, evangelism and missions. To a church that's in love with Jesus, there is little more important than sharing the gospel. 
It's the ultimate reason we exist. It's the primary mission of the church. And like-minded sister churches identify, empower, and release for gospel advancement. I'll just share with you really quickly from Acts chapter 13. First missionaries that go out. Now there was at the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a long, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being led out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. It's a marvelous account of missions and evangelism birthed out of the church. Missions and evangelism birthed out of the context of worship and seeking the heart of God with a desire to be obedient to what the Spirit says. Missions and evangelism spurred on by selfless commitment to further the kingdom. Missions and evangelism ignited by obedience to the call of the Spirit that's costly in terms of people and resources. And missions and evangelism that's stimulated by desire to glorify God and see others come to Christ. See, to live as a church that wants to see the kingdom of God go forth with power, we have to be willing to think beyond our own confines. We have to recognize the work of God through his church, not just central, but his church, the broader church. It requires a willingness to risk for the sake of the gospel. It's one of the reasons that central has embraced this crazy campus model. Not to further the reach of central. Who cares? One day we won't exist. I'm hoping it's at least five more years, but one day we won't exist. But to further the reach of the gospel, because the gospel is eternal. Our vision is to see the eastern Fraser Valley transformed by the gospel for the glory of God and good of all people. And so we step out in faith, and we commission more campuses, because there's places where there is no gospel presence. That's why we're doing Harrison this fall. It's crazy, but it's gospel. And so our, our mission to reach the eastern Fraser Valley is birthed out of a context of worship. We want to see God glorified. And it's out of a heart to serve and be obedient to Jesus and to be selfless for the kingdom and to, to obey the decades call. You know, Central is 77 years old now. And in year one, they sent out a mission to DeRoche because they wanted people to hear the gospel. That's our history. It's birthed out of sacrifice. We're willing to sacrifice our comfort and our safety and our security for the goal of seeing others come to Christ. We're always stretched. And, you know, I, you, I, every year, I, I oversee, help oversee the finances. It keeps me up at night sometimes when I think about it. Right? It's like, oh, man, how are we ever going to afford this stuff? And then, you know, it's just like Jesus. He's like, oh, you have little faith. Because he always comes through. Now, that's not meant to be flippant, right? But because we are determined to be faithful to the call to plant gospel-centered churches, Jesus' glory shines. Our vision is to see the Eastern Fraser Valley transformed, but it's bigger than that. We want to see Canada transformed. And when other churches benefit from evangelism and missions, it's a kingdom win. Uh, how many people, uh, it said in the thing at the South Side, how many people came to Jesus in the last couple of weeks? 43 or something like that? That's our win. It didn't happen here, but 
It's kingdom. Partnering with sister churches for the gospel reflects our unity and brings glory to Jesus and advances the kingdom and saves souls. So the question is, how does it apply to you? Well, a couple of things. Give yourself to living at unity with fellow believers. If you're at odds with someone in the church, go make peace. It'll please Jesus. And if you don't, you're discrediting your Savior. There is nothing you can't work out if Jesus is your focal point. Our collective experience in Jesus binds us together. Didn't talk a lot about doctrine, but I just encourage you to watch your life and doctrine closely. Stay true to the word. Listen to the leaders around you who are given to being gospel-centered and true. If you experience something, test it by Scripture. Ask people around you, does this seem like it's Holy Spirit? Don't just run with it. And then finally, develop an attitude of joy that leads to kingdom fruit. Invest in the kingdom. It's the only way to make your resources count. Give yourself to living sacrificially for the kingdom. Serve Jesus and serve the church. Celebrate the success of other churches. My guess is most of you, well, if you're up in Promontory, probably not. But, but down in Chilliwack, most of our people drive past 37 churches to get to Chilliwack Central. Maybe not 37, maybe it's only 34. But every day we drive past churches. When's the last time you prayed for a church as you drove past it? Asking the favor of God to rest on them. So it's, a, it's a practical expression of unity. And pray for brothers and sisters who talk about how well their church is doing and celebrate that. Just bask in the glory of Jesus and watch as God builds his kingdom. Simply put, embrace the privilege of serving King Jesus by loving his church and reaching this community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to... <clears throat> We want to see your kingdom come, and we want to see your will done. And you've taught us to pray that that should happen on earth as it already is happening in heaven. And so I pray to that end. Lord, would you unite us and find us faithful, pour out your glory on us, and authenticate your mission through us so people would see something's going on here. Would you find us solid and faithful in the truth of the gospel. And then, Lord, would you make us lavishly engaged and um, joyfully willing to invest to see others come to know Christ with our time, with our resources, and with the talents you've given. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. And as we give ourselves to reaching the Eastern Fraser Valley, we recognize that's not just through Central alone. That's all the churches that you're raising up. So would you find your church fruitful for your glory and for our good? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.